the anticipation is building. Years of hard work has led to this. We're here, sitting in our black tie. The host opens the envelope. The moment is here. And the winner of the 2023 Lawyer Award for... Independent Firm. Members of the Year. Private Equity Team. Litigation Team. Sustainability Initiative. And many, many more. Is... Well, you'll just have to wait and see. But you can start getting excited because the Lawyer Awards shortlist is out now. So if you want to know if you've made the cut, head to the Lawyer website right now. Well, actually, listen to the podcast first and then go to the Lawyer website. (laughs) But I tell you, if that music did not get you excited, nothing will. But for now, on with the podcast. Welcome. I am Catherine Griffiths, editor of The Lawyer. I'm litigation editor Christian Smith. And on this episode, we'll also be joined by international editor Alex Taylor to talk all things dogs and whether the dog's days in the office are over. Also, judging by our statistics, our readers have been fascinated by the story of the Ince Group going into administration last week. We'll ask, what happens when law firms collapse? But first, part one of the lawyer's annual U.S. Top 50 is about to hit your desks. It dives into the state of the top 50 U.S. firms in the U.K. The report's lead author and the lawyer's director of Insight joins us now, Matt Byrne. This is uh, an extraordinarily powerful uh, component of the city legal market. It's been leading the whole salary inflation it was going mad last year. What is the story now that the dust has settled a little bit? What are you seeing after the sort of hiring sprees and so on? Well, it, you're right that it's a, an extraordinary engine of the city. Um, and we've been tracking US firms in London. And even that is a is a fraught term. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> We're not a US firm. We're not blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of different models there, um, but you know we've been tracking them for twenty plus years, and um, they have really evolved. And I think the really interesting thing about this market is the extent to which it's grown. It's grown from from clearly a lot of these firms were satellite offices of beer moth, you know, US giants to um they've gone through the acquisition stage of mergers with uk firms to the huge accelerated growth phase that you've seen over the last five years where again they've they've it's off the back of us uk firms but it's through lateral hires uh you know i'm thinking obviously kirkland and and goodwin and the likes of those firms so what we've got here uh, and it is really a, a landmark it, it, throughout the year now, along with the UK 200. The US 50 has become such a big part of the market that it is a mm. landmark report in its own. Um, is the first part, it's part one, if you will, <laughs> of, of a two-part story on the US firms. And we focus on headcount. And then next month, the report will focus on the financials. Let me give you one data point. Lawyer numbers last year grew by 10%, which may not sound a huge amount, although it's pretty chunky. That's from just under 7,000 lawyers to 7,700 lawyers, just in working in U.S. headquartered firms. And that's a market that's worth about $8 billion. Mm. So it's, it's a gargantuan part of the market. 
It's going to be very interesting to see, actually, and I know that you're going to keep your powder dry on that to see yeah. whether the increase in headcount will correspond to the increase in revenues, because we're already seeing a couple of major US firms who have announced their their figures have yeah. been flatlining. And that that raises a very interesting question, whether some of these US firms that have been unbelievably prolific in hiring, paying an awful lot of money to headhunters as well, um, and often with guaranteed salaries, but also sometimes with signing on bonuses, they've, they've been splashing a lot of cash around. But now the deals at the back end of last year were not coming in to, to quite justify those, um, those sort yeah, of investments. It, it, clearly, clearly we're going to see uh, a, a tailing off of the revenue growth. We've mm. already seen it with some, some US firms who've reported. Not all the US firms in London have reported. Um, and we won't have all of that data in for a, for a couple of weeks yet. Uh, but certainly you've seen some firms flatline, some go down, uh, even if their their global growth has gone up, or again, in some cases, global growth has gone up and the London has gone down. So, you know, a bit of a mix. Still seen one or two US firms actually grow relatively well last year, and then some others have, have absolutely gone down. The headcount thing is a bit of a lagging indicator because they, they, they'll have grown uh, headcount off the back of the boom in transactional mm. deal activity in 21 and into 22 and then clearly a lot of those people are still there but there's there's less for them to do so what's going to happen it's already happening in the states there there, there's layoffs at you know numerous firms some of the very public ones is uh you know cooley and uh goodwin i think sherman also but there's more it's, it's beyond that clearly it's beyond that and i think it's it's happening in the city as well but not on the same scale but what is interesting about the scale point is this jump, this 10% jump, is by far the biggest jump in lawyer headcount mm. in the US 50 that I think we've ever seen, and certainly for a number of years. I mean, you, you sort of talk a little bit about sort of possible volatility um, coming yeah. up, and this is why this indicator is so interesting, because, you know, sort of there's lots of behavioural issues that this this brings out. For example, you know, we hear that a lot of associates are, are more reluctant to move now because they know you know, last in, first out, as it were. So if they are, if they are moving, you know, it's, it's getting harder for headhunters to sort of prize some of the, the decent associates um, out of their current seats precisely because of there's a, there's a, there's a looming fear of volatility within that workforce as well. Mm. Um, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because it, it certainly does seem to be proof in the pudding that, that all of the stuff that we were talking about for the last few years about the crazy recruitment market is is paying off. And, you know, these numbers are going up. I think it'd be interesting to see what happens with disputes lawyers, which obviously the area that I'm most interested in. I was talking to a, a, a top, top-tier top firm very recently, not a US firm, but a very top-tier firm, who was saying that, as, as you say, Matt, the transactional market in terms of laterals has just dried up, but the disputes market is is really, really starting to grow, um, and there just simply aren't the lawyers around. Traditionally, of course, US firms less interested in disputes, but it might be interesting to, to follow whether that changes now as the economy changes as well. Mm. Yeah, and there's no doubt that the, the emphasis of investment for these firms is, is shifting. And um, I don't know whether you'll see the same numbers, probably not, but it's it's shifting. And as is the way they recruit, I think it's really interesting. One of the things we found in, in this report, and we flag up in this report, is is, is not particularly new, but I think it's indicative of, again, that sort of level of maturity of this group of firms as a market is that 
uh, and and again a sheer indication of the of the sheer scale that often more often than not when they're recruiting and US firms are hiring in London they're hiring from other US firms it's not mm-hmm. as simple as they're hiring from UK firms and also because they've been around for years often lawyers are joining firms to work with people that they've already worked with before at other firms and we've mm. seen this year with Paul Hastings has made a, a, a raft of hires and a lot of them, you know, know each other and have worked together. McDermott has done the same thing. Morrison Forster done the same thing. They, they're bringing in people who say, we worked with you 10 years ago at wherever we were, Latham or Kirkham. We know you're great. And now I've moved to this, you know, slightly smaller firm, mm. but we're building something. And why don't you come work with us? And that's, that's definitely um, a, a beneficial, fruitful way of the, some of these uh, some of these firms are growing. I don't, there is one stat I think is worth flagging up, which is particularly relevant for U.S. firms. So for as long as we've been focusing on them as a group, there have been at least one or two firms with zero female partners in the city, and that's changed. That's this is the first time and i think an, another indication of the the sort of the way these firms are changing and are morphing there are now uh, at least one female partner <gasps> i know one that's oh, incredible matt slow slow hand clap slow hand clap for these US well firms. you know come on let's bring a bit <laughs> <laughs> let's let's draw a veil on that because I think we'll all have uh, some interesting things to say. Oh, no, actually, the the other point is actually whether they trained them up themselves or they were in the lateral for, lateral market for it. Because there's a world of difference between actually sort of bringing sort of female partners up through the ranks within a particular culture. Absolutely. Matt, thank you so much. Um, those of you who subscribe to the City Signal channel on the lawyer dot com, uh, that report is uh, as as Christian said hitting your desk now, and there is so much to get your teeth into. Well, from some of the most profitable firms in the world to the Ints Group, which went into administration this month. After months of financial difficulties and missed accounting deadlines, the firm's collapse was long drawn out. To explain what went wrong, earlier I caught up with our reporter, Maria Ward-Brennan, who's been covering the story for the lawyer, and I asked her what the Ints Group was. So the Ince Group was a combination of two firms. You had your Ince & Co, which was a traditional shipping law firm, very notable, highly regarded, um, sort of in the top tier. And then you had your Gordon Dads, which was a Mayfair base, focused on family law and litigation. And in about 2018, after so the Ince & Co itself went into its first administration, I give a take from this, um, Gordon Dabbs acquired Inson Co and it sort of merged into, it was initially the Ince Gordon Dabbs and then as time went on, they sort of had a rename and then they became sort of the Ince Group. And then, I mean, after the acquisition, when did things start to go wrong, really? It was 2022 that was just the year that it was sort of a, bit of a car crash for them so it, it probably you get pinpointed down to the cyber attack so that happened in around march time where their it which was going through sort of a updating i believe sort of you know integrating a new system in sort of asia was then sort of hacked at that point they were threatened to pay ransom it seemed like this was 
up to it cost about five million pounds this sort of hacking cost them uh, so that was the starting point again there is sort of their financial problems as well they, they always pinpointed it to the problems ongoing issues with hong kong and china and then they started talking about obviously the ukraine war this is sort of affecting their sort of market they would pinpoint and how did it finally all unravel in the last couple of months so uh, the, the, probably the biggest blame would go down to the fact that they haven't been able to publish their accounts for 2022 and the H1 accounts for um, 2023 this year. So they kept delaying and delaying it. Just a few days before Christmas, I had a publish announcement on London Stock Exchange, the fact that, again, because they're delaying it, they're releasing all this information that the London Stock Exchange has suspended them. So upon the 3rd of January of this year, they're going to be suspended from trading on the London Stock Exchange. There was a deadline again in January. They didn't meet that. Deadline again in March. Didn't meet that. Another deadline two weeks later. Didn't meet that. And then it just came to the point where it was just this was financially costing them just too much money. And the shareholders and investors and anybody who had a bit of funding in it has had just weren't going to fund them anymore. And now it's still early days, but but what do we know about what might happen next? So there's a lot of speculation as to what's going to happen. I think that's what it is in itself is speculation at the moment. Most of the at the at the moment in time, and particularly in the market, you could see the the shipping side of the business was was still relatively profitable. Um, there's a sort of speculation in terms of buyers someone might come and buy the firm it's currently going as true as administration but on reflection others in the market would say why buy something that's not worth anything the ins group and the ins name itself is worth nothing it's pretty much rubbed into the dirt at this stage and you, you understand the fact that this is technically a second administration so you know you can go through one by getting through another one and coming out rosy on the other side is probably not going to be what we're going to see. So I don't see a revival of the firm. Personally, I don't think some people in the sector will see a revival of the firm. That was our reporter Maria Ward-Brennan on the downfall of INTS. But what actually happens when a law firm collapses? Kat, it feels like we spend you know, quite a lot of our time, particularly in recent years, reporting on law firms' booming revenues and their amazing successes. But it's easy to forget that firms actually do go belly up more often than you think. Well, our Horizon editor and veteran of many a law firm collapse, Katie Dowell, joins us to discuss what happens when law firms die. Katie, welcome. Hi, Kat. Um, now, you and I have uh, sort of lived through quite a few of these uh, sort of very dramatic law firm collapses. And um, obviously, it's worth saying that they're really horrible for anyone that's actually experiencing them on the inside. But they make very, very lurid stories. Um, and they're a sort of a fulcrum of the way that sort of human beings behave in, in mm. trying circumstances. Just so that listeners are kind of aware of the, some of the big ones that have happened over the last sort of 10, 15 years, we had... KWM, which had previously been SJ Bowen. Um, we had Halliwells, we had Dewey LeBeouf. What's your sort of memories of the longer term effects of any of those and actually the sort of the ripples that they had in the market? Halliwells always stands out for me because it was so shocking. And that day, I remember speaking to a clerk who ha happened to be in the office on the day that um, and he was there pitching for work and upstairs they were issuing a liquidation notice so that's quite but 
when these things happen, they don't usually happen so quickly. But I, I would say that the longer term implications are for the people that are within those firms mm -hmm. and how the rest of the market tends to rally around to rescue those people. There's always a lot of personalities involved, isn't it? It's quite an it's emotional true. topic for those yeah. partners involved as well. So, you know, it's it's a really interesting response viscerally, how, how you kind of come back to the people that you've worked with, mm -hmm. but also how you reach out to the market around you to for that support as well. I think that's, that's actually a really good point. I think um, on the whole, it brings out, it's always very, very bad behaviour from the firms themselves. Um, and we mm -hmm. can talk about that in a minute, about sort of the cultural dysfunction of, of all of those firms that that we mentioned. But actually, it spurs on rather good behaviour by people wider in the market i mean there's lots of times where people have taken on trainees that have offered jobs to all sorts of people and so we're not talk just talking about come on someone you know scooping up some available partners for potential revenue reasons although of course that is currently happening with ints um, as we understand but um but actually there's quite a lot of fellow feeling isn't there Yes, it's it's um it's you know if you've got a group of trainees that have just joined the firm and and they've lost their jobs within six months, it's mm. it's really it's quite nice to see these other firms coming in to pick those trainees up. It's not an easy thing just to take them in. You've got to create a, a training program for them. You've got to create partner time for them. All of this stuff has to be considered in the context of a wider strategy. So yeah, it is something they. Obviously, they don't do it entirely out of the goodness of their hearts, but it is something that you see. It does happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think if if there is such thing as altruism in the commercial legal sector, that's yeah. usually when it's when it's um, <laughs> when it's displayed there. there I mean, I think you and I and we're not going to mention names on this on this podcast, but oh. you and I remember very, very well. Um, instances of incredibly poor behaviour by named partners at each of those firms. I'm thinking particularly KWM, and actually I remember Halliwell's as well, when yeah. equity partners had no care for some of those teams, um, certainly not the associates and quite often not the junior partners as well. They just really, really saved their own skins. Um, now, we're not saying that this is necessarily happening at INS at all, no. uh, but certainly, um, I mean, that left a very, very bad taste in the mouth. And I think even now when I see that someone is an ex KWM partner or an ex Halliwell's partner, I take a minute to check to say, are they one of the good guys or are they one of the bad guys? Because <laughs> you, you remember, you absolutely yeah. remember the names. You knew you knew who was, you know, sort of really essentially, you know, not looking after their colleagues and frankly, you know, who carving out their equity. Carving out their equity, weren't they? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it's a sort of it, it is a real microscope on mm personal values and personal ethics and all the rest of it i mean my view you know and i've i've written this ints should never have listed it wasn't you know it wasn't no. a good enough stock um you know it, it was clearly the investors didn't think much of it because the share price was terrible uh, so i think you have that pressure on top that you've actually got sort of reporting requirements and so on as well as sort of actually being in a faltering business that's been affected by all sorts of geopolitical kind of issues because of the way their business was was structured and so on so i think there's a sort of there was a kind of grinding inevitability of what was going to happen to ints wasn't there i think so which is quite a sad state of affairs isn't it i just hope yeah. that something good comes out of it at the end and, and some of the partners that are there do do manage to get security somewhere else in the short term indeed and i think you know as we we will be continue to follow that on the lawyer.com thanks okay. katie thank you now finally dogs 
Yes, if you are a dog person, the last few years have been great because everybody seems to have got one and all other pets have been left in the shade. Even Slaughter and May and Eversheds have allowed people to bring their dogs to work. But, and I'll put this diplomatically, why is everyone so obsessed with dogs in the office? Um, well, we are joined by international editor and one of the lawyer's many dog owners, Alex Taylor, whose dog, Pilot, has been firmly locked outside his home office. Now, A.T., you got Pilot during the pandemic, didn't you? Do you have buyer's remorse? <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I do ask myself that question every day. Um, and no, I don't. Um like I grew up with dogs. My parents separated at quite a young age. So my mum always had a dog on her side. My dad always had a dog on his side. So we've always grown up around them. But I would be lying if I said that occasionally I did not yearn for spontaneity in my weekend plans. <laughs> so, and do you think bringing dogs to an office is a good thing? Did you did you stand up and cheer when Slaughter and May said you, they were going to have a... A dog day is this? Is this altogether a good idea? Does everyone really agree with this? I, I mean, I'm I'm skeptical. Like I say, I love dogs. I have always kept dogs. I am skeptical about whether or not their place in the workplace is totally totally necessary each and every day. Like I I like having Pilot around at home. I actually do think that. If you go through the physical and mental well-being aspects, actually, the temptation may be to just be a bit of a just be a bit of a lazy sodger in the middle of the day. Do I need mm. to go for a midday walk? Actually, having him there does ensure that I get up in the morning, I take him out, I leave at midday, and all around, I do think the general productivity and health benefits of that are great. I mean, we bought them at the top of the market. So if you I, if you ever catch me giving you financial advice, disregard it immediately. <laughs> but is is this really a British thing? I mean, AT, you you've been visiting all sorts of European capitals. Christian, you just spent time at home in New Zealand, and you know Singapore and Australia very well. You know, is this super London? Is it super British, or is the whole world doing this? I do think there's something in that. I think that, you know, funnily enough, I had my mum over here last year and she remarked without me even commenting to her, and it was something I'd been thinking for a while, just how many dogs were in pubs, how many there were in the parks. I mean, obviously, parks is a great place for dogs. But, you know, how many there were in, in cinemas, everywhere you looked, there were dogs. And, you know, we love dogs. I love dogs. I've always wanted a dog all my life. I was never allowed one growing up, but I always wanted one. But it is very much, I do think, a British thing, this idea that dogs kind of belong in every setting. It's mm. not particularly typical in other countries. It's certainly not back in New Zealand. Um, in, in terms of in the office, I mean, I have to admit, I love dogs. And, and I used to work somewhere where we had a little office dog, and it was the cutest, quietest thing in the world. But it was an office where we had about six people, and it didn't really matter. I, I do think this idea that it's a work perk to be able to bring your dog into the office is just a little bit over the top. And it's very um, specific workplaces, isn't it? I mean, these are sort of large law firms that have got the staff, as AT said, you know, sort of, you know, people to clean up, to prep, to sort talk, talk out the sort of health and safety aspects and all the insurance aspects. And, you know, when you go to the inns of court, for example, are there that many dogs? Do barristers bring their dogs to work? They don't bring them to court. You know, is that? Do you see that? That certainly hasn't happened at the bar, has it? And you could, you could 
you know, um, argue that a sort of a nice dog in chambers would be um, a, a, a lovely cosy thing to have. I guarantee you a senior KC has brought a dog into the office on the regular and everyone's a bit too scared of that person to tell them not to do it. Oh, <laughs> the, oh my God, does the dog smell? I bet the dog smells. And I, no bet you, I bet you oh. it does, I, but I guarantee I, that that happens. But I, but I mean, I think... I, 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 I don't know. It's an interesting story about why it's happening and, and, and why firms have felt the need to say to people, yes, you can do that. But I really don't see it hanging around for much longer. It's just... Is it a sort of a, a, a shortcut for some of these firms to perform uh, community values, if you like? I mean, I know I'm sounding a real cynic, but is it yeah. a kind of way of saying, look at us, we're one lovely, happy family. We're allowed dogs in and we've got some fish in the lobby and it's all fabulous and you know it, it just feels a little bit wearing your dog collar on your sleeve or something it, it, I, I, it, I i agree with that I, I i think that it's almost something that's become part of particularly in the uk culture here since the pandemic that dog equals good anything linked to a dog is therefore showing a value of of cuddliness and happiness and wholesomeness we have i think probably between us started to hear more and more from from lawyers and firms that they're not as open to this idea of dogs as they were say even Mm. three or four months ago you know is this the start of the turn are we about are we starting to return to a more normal post-pandemic working habit where it's not just dogs but it's working from home and other things too are starting to change well, I think you might be right, Christian. I think every firm should be forced to declare whether they're a dog firm or a cat firm. And, you know, and that on that basis, you can decide sort of, you can decide which firm that you want to work for, you know, uh, pro dogs or not. And I think that, that is, that would be very helpful for all applicants. But he's running a partnership. I mean, that's already a level of herding cats that I don't think most people <laughs> could actually get around to. So if you're introducing even more felines into that environment, is that what we need? <laughs> and on that bombshell... Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Well, look, that's all we've got time for on this episode of The Lawyer Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at podcastatthelawyer.com. And of course, you can find more about anything and everything we've been discussing at thelawyer.com. We'll be back again in a fortnight. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.